Today, I want to begin a two-part series. We're called Living on Mission. And how many of you know if you're going to live a life on mission, you got to live a life with priorities? So I'm, I'm hoping to get some amens this morning because you've already demonstrated by your presence here today that you've got some priorities in your life. It, it takes a commitment to say, on the first day of the week, I'm coming to the house of the Lord. I'm going to be in God's house. I'm going to be with God's people. I'm going to worship. I'm going to serve. I'm going to offer my prayers. I'm going to give. Even, even as I see our ushers still serving some of you in the back of the room. It takes a commitment. It takes priorities to say, I'm going to put God first in my life. And so as we get into this today, I want to just begin by communicating to you that, that if we look at the heart of our maker, if we look at the heart of God, what we see is a God who's very intentional, a God who does things on purpose. In Genesis chapter 1, we see uh, God is communicating. It's a, a triune conversation. It's not just God talking to himself. It's God the Father talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God said, let's make man in our image so that they can do something. God never created you to just sit and occupy space on a chair on a Sunday morning in a church. Come on, somebody. Amen. The first conversation that we see between God and humanity the first thing God communicates to his newly formed creation, made in his own image, we find it in the next couple verses. In verse 21, it says, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it, over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the living creatures that move on the ground. God created us with purpose. And when you look at the sun, when you look at the life of Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So if you ever wondered what God is like, come on, find the red letters. Look at Jesus because he's the exact representation of God. In fact, one time in John chapter 14, Jesus was talking with his disciples. I mean, this is like the Last Supper, end of the ministry. They've been through, through three years of, of intensive discipleship. And Philip, one of the disciples, actually says to Jesus, if you would show us the Father, that would be enough. And, and Jesus says to him there in John chapter 14, in verse 9, he answered him, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been among you for such a long time. Now notice what he says next. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So when we look at Jesus, we see the heart of the Father. And what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus stepped out of the glory of heaven. He came down, put on an earth suit, and he went on a mission. He said in Luke 19, 10, exactly what that mission is, didn't he? He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. So when Jesus came to redeem your life, he came to redeem my life. He came to redeem the purpose of your life. Come on, he didn't just die on a cross, raised from the dead, so that you could spend all of eternity floating on some uh, ethereal white space with an itchy satin robe strumming a golden harp. Aren't you glad about that? No, when he came to redeem your life, he came to redeem a purpose for your life. 
In fact, I was reading this week in Revelation chapter 22. I mean, we just looked at the, the, the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1. But if you go to the back of the book, what you find in Genesis, or Revelation chapter 22 is a beautiful picture of Eden fully restored. And in that picture of days to come, the Bible says that the, the throne of God and the Lamb will be right there in the city with the people. And there will be a river that flows from the throne of God. And the Bible says his people will serve him. And then it says this, and they, the people of God, will reign with him. I know you're quiet this morning, but I hope it's because you're paying attention. Listen, the, the plan of God for your life was not just to save you from the fall, rescue you from sin. God's plan of redemption, which is right now set in motion, is to fully restore everything that was lost in Eden. When you look at the front of the book, you see a perfect relationship where God walks in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. They have fellowship with God, and they have dominion to rule, to reign, to be on mission. You go to the back of your book, you see the same picture. God is there, his throne is among his people, and they are ruling and reigning in the earth. God is redeeming the purpose for his church from cover to cover. Somebody ought to say amen to that. When you look at the Holy Spirit, we see in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to align our lives with our mission. Acts 1.8 says, and this is Jesus speaking, but you will receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit came on the church to enable them and to empower them to live a life on mission. And you know what's crazy? We know this intuitively. We know this. Like as children, just look at kids playing on the playground. And you see, they understand life's supposed to be about an adventure. I'm supposed to be on a mission. Like you just watch the way they play. You know, if you don't give them any toys, that's all right. They're going to find a stick. They're going to turn it into a sword. They're going to slay a dragon. They're going to rescue a princess. If that stick breaks, that's okay. We'll turn it into a gun. We're going to go to war. We're going to conquer the enemy, right? Like we're, we're going we're gonna to do something. And, and ask a child what they want to do when they grow up. I've never met a kindergartner that said, you know, one day I just, I just really want to file paperwork. <laughs> Have you? Like, never met a kid that said, like, I, I, just, I just really want to crunch a lot of numbers for a long time. For like 40 years. And then get a watch and quit. Like, like no. No, you ask a child what they want to do. They want to live a life on mission. They, they, want, to, they want to bring healing. They say, I want to be a doctor. Or, or, or they want to rescue people. They say, I want to be a policeman. Or I want to be a, a fireman. Or, I, you know, I, I want to help people. Even the kids that say, like, I, I want to be a professional athlete. Like, no kid says, you know, one day I hope to graduate from college and, and be good enough to, to get selected for a pro team. I don't want to be too good. I just want to be good enough to just sit on the bench so I can get, you know, get an income and, and not get injured. Like, no kid is saying that. That's not the dream, right? The dream is I, one day I'm going to score the touchdown. One day I'm going to hit the buzzer beater. One day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the interception. I'm going to win the game. Why? Because intuitively we know. We know. We're supposed to live on mission. There, there's something to be gained 
that's beyond us. And it's only when we get older that, that our priorities start to shift. And they shift away from significance and towards safety. Our, our values and our priorities shift from our purpose to our pleasure. But in God's grace, and this is the testimony of many people in this house today, you were saved. You were redeemed. The Bible says you were born again. And that childlike faith creates a childlike nature. And for the first time in a long time, you woke up to the reality that God has a purpose for my life. I mean, I, I felt like I was going nowhere. I thought I had lost it all. I didn't see uh, any hope for my future until Christ redeemed me. And all of a sudden, you got a new lease and a new outlook on life. But here, here's the warning today that I want to give you, church. If we don't cultivate that missional purpose for our life, we'll abandon it. L life's just too comfortable. We'll shrink back into the impotence of a self-centered life. And can I just say to us today, Satan doesn't have to stop the church. If he can just make the church impotent, you can busy yourself till Jesus comes. I, I want, before we even jump into the, the, the text that we're gonna camp out in today, it's, it's in Acts chapter four if you wanna get a head start. I, I wanna just take a moment right here. I wanna just pray. And I wanna ask the Holy Spirit to just deposit his word into our hearts. Would you join me? Maybe even as you're turning in your Bibles to Acts 4, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your presence today that we sense as we worship. Thank you so much for the assurance of the promise that when two or more people gather in your name, you are there and you're here today. Jesus, you said time and again, let he who has ears hear what the spirit is saying so we know you're faithful your word is true god give us ears to hear what you're saying to your church in jesus name amen amen amen, amen. acts chapter 4 is where we're going but let me just let me just launch into this by telling you that last sunday uh, god really put a word on my heart late in the week uh, friday morning I really felt like it was a, a word for our church in this season, and many people have confirmed that it, it was a timely word for them. I don't say this often, but can I just encourage you, if, if you weren't here last weekend, uh, go back and, and receive that message. Uh, even as we're 15, 16 days into, uh, into the war that's happening in the Gaza Strip and we're seeing these things play out in the news, I felt like the word the Lord spoke last week was a right now word for his people. And, and the message was out of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter two begins with these words. It's a question that says, why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot in vain? And so last week we looked at those realities that the, the nations rage, the people rage, but, but God rebukes and Jesus reigns and then we respond. The reason I want you to look at Acts chapter four for a moment is because the New Testament church recognized that they were living out the fulfillment of what was prophesied in Psalm chapter two. Did you know that in the Bible, there are 1,817 predictions of future events? Over 1,800 prophecies 
in the Bible about things to come. Over 1,200 of them are in the Old Testament. 570 some are in the New Testament. And here's the good news about all that. About half of those 1,800 plus predictions have already been fulfilled. So as we sit today with our Bibles open and, and on the screen and, and, and we're meditating on the word, you ought to do it with a high level of confidence that God is going to do everything he said he was going to do. He's faithful to his word. He is faithful to his word. And the New Testament church recognized they were living in the reality that Psalm chapter 2 prophetically spoke of. So in the midst of intense persecution breaking out in the church, they began to pray and they actually quoted Psalm chapter 2. I want you to see this with me. Acts chapter four, I'm gonna begin in verse 26. They've already gathered together and it says, when they heard this, speaking of the, the persecution that had, that had been done against Peter and John, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Which, by the way, if you want to know how did we get the Bible, that's how we got it. Now, David's only one of the authors, but that's a great description of how we got the word of God. God spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant. And then they begin to quote what God spoke through David hundreds of years before. This is a direct quote from Psalm chapter two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now on Wednesday night this past week, uh, we looked at this text in our Wednesday night prayer gathering. And man, did we have an awesome time in our Wednesday night prayer meeting. But we looked at this text. The reason I'm, I'm coming back here again, and I just want to mention a couple things we talked about, and then I want to go a little farther for a moment. But on Wednesday night, we looked at the reality of the perspective and the pattern of the New Testament church's prayer life. The perspective, we see it right here in the opening statement. When they began to pray, they said, Sovereign Lord. Yes, the nations were raging. Yes, persecution's breaking out. But they recognized in that moment that God is in control. And, and here, then they explain why the word of God was ministering so much to them in that moment. I love verse 27 because verse 27 is actually the new, it's a picture for us to look into how uh, the church operates. Chapter, or verse 27 is, is the New Testament church exegeting the text of Psalm chapter 2. They're saying this is what the word of the Lord said through David centuries ago. And this is how it applies in our life. We recognize this is God's word. So verse 27, they said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So when Psalm 2 said, the nations raised, they said, yep, that's our nation. And the rulers and the kings rise up. They go, yep, that was Pontius Pilate. That was Herod against the Lord's anointed. And they go, that was Jesus. Like this all makes sense. We see God's word coming to pass in our lifetime. 
They had a perspective that God is in control of it all. That's why verse 28 says, of all those that were conspiring and of all the nations that were raging, they said in verse 28, they only did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't it good to know no matter what, what scrolls across the ticker, whatever's on the, uh, the news feed, whatever's trending online, isn't it good to know that the enemy can only make what happened what the Lord decided beforehand should happen? So they understood we are held. We're held today. This, this is the perspective of their prayer. The pattern of their prayer, we see it back in verse 24. It says, as soon as they heard this, they prayed. They had a prayer reflex. They lifted up their voices together. It was their first response in a raging world. And here's what I love about the prayer. They don't pray like, God, get us out of here. They don't pray, God, save us from this terrible world we're in. No, they actually pray a prayer for supernatural resources to confront the challenges head on. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, here's the prayer. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here's the prayer of the New Testament church. God, enable us, empower us. You know, that verse we looked at in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power. That word power in the Greek is the word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. And so a lot of times we think of the Holy Spirit's power and we think of this explosive power. And to be honest, there's a lot of personalities in the church. Anytime we talk about the Holy Spirit, they start to explode a little bit. You know, and if you're sitting next to them and that's not your church background, you know, they're going power and you're going power, you know. But can I tell you a better understanding of the word power? It's not just an explosive presence of God. It's a supernatural enablement. Like, Jesus didn't promise the Holy Spirit just so that church would be more exciting. He promised the Holy Spirit so that we could be witnesses that would reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So he said, I'm going to enable you. And this is the prayer of the New Testament church. Post-Pentecost, they've already received the power of God. But they're not just hanging their hat on what God did at youth camp over the summer. They got issues today. And they're like, Lord, enable your servants again. Give us more power. Enable your servants. We want to stretch out your hand. We want to see signs and wonders and miracles in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And, and here's, here's the reason I came back to this text this morning. I want you to see what the result of this prayer was. Acts 30, or verse 4, chapter 4, verse 31 says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and what? They spoke the word of God boldly. They, they were changed. It wasn't, it wasn't just about what happened in the room. It was what happened when they left the room. They spoke the word of God boldly. So here's the pattern of the New Testament church. When the nations rage, God's people pray. And they don't pray with an escapist theology. They don't just gather around and, you know, huddle under a steeple and sing kumbaya till he comes. 
No, they say, God, enable us. This is, this is not the goal of Christianity. This is the huddle. We come together on the weekend to call the play, ready, break. Enable us with your Holy Spirit to go out and to execute the plan and purpose of God in our generation. Amen. They prayed. And I want you to know God answers that kind of prayer. He'll answer that kind of prayer. He'll respond. Just an introspective question here this morning. Consider if, if Jesus answered today the prayers you prayed yesterday, would more people be saved this morning? Just consider it for a moment. If, if, I mean, if he really came through, if he really showed out and he answered all the prayers you prayed yesterday, or, or would you just sleep better? Would you just have a little more money in the bank? Would your lunch today supernaturally bring nourishment to your body, even though it's totally unhealthy? Like, <laughs> because you prayed that way. Or if God answered your prayers today that you prayed yesterday, would a raging world know Jesus? Now, I don't say that because I want to guilt anybody about your personal prayer life, okay? Let me just say, God cares about your needs. He cares about every need. In fact, beyond that, he cares about your desires. He invites you to come to him with, with, with your desires, with your hopes, with your dreams. But what I do want to do today is I want to encourage you to understand that when we look into the mirror of God's word, not the mirror of society, not the mirror of culture or the church down the street, but when we look into the mirror of God's word, what we find is that normal Christianity from the very beginning is missional living. It's outward focused, others centered. And what I want to say to, to the nominal believer or the casual Christian is, is that if, if following Jesus just means you've added him as an addition to your already self-centered life, you've missed the gospel. When Jesus comes and moves into your life, he takes center stage. Like, here's the thing, praying a prayer of salvation is easy to do. In fact, the Bible says you can just come with the faith like a child, just believe. And even saying the words, maybe you've said the words, Lord, I receive you in my heart. Easy to say, especially when you're surrounded by a whole lot of other Christians like we are this morning. But the reality is when you realize asking Jesus to come into your heart fleshes out by Jesus coming into your bank account or Jesus coming into your calendar. It, it, the reality of Jesus in my heart means Jesus comes into my friend group. It means Jesus comes into my hobbies. Hear me today, friends. When Jesus takes center stage in your heart, your heart finds a new rhythm. You begin to beat for the things that his heart beats for. And his heart beats for the lost. I heard a missionary say it years ago, God only had one son and he called him to be a missionary. And I think that statement reflects the reality of his heart. If you want to know what Christianity, normal, I'm not talking about being super zealous or, or extra or, 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 or being extreme. I mean normal Christianity, just taking up your cross and following Jesus. If you want to know what that looks like, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. 
And we see it's the invitation where, where God says to Abraham, I, I want you to be mine. I, I'm going to have a special people. I'm going to make a nation and the nations will be blessed through you. And though this was before Christ, we see a picture here of what it looks like to actually be a part of the people of God. And when you become a part of the people of God, what you realize is really quickly, God doesn't just have a covenant promise for us. Thank God for that, that we're, you know, we're, we're saved. If you know Jesus, you're, you're saved. You're in covenant with him. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. But you recognize that we have more than a covenant promise. We also have, with that, a covenant of purpose. In other words, there's, there's more beyond your rescue. Look at it with me quickly. We'll come back to Acts, but in Genesis chapter 12, God's speaking to Abram and he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. We all want to be a part of that, right? I mean, we sang the song growing up in Sunday school, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has father. I am one of them and so are you. Like We all want that. He said, I will bless you. Then he goes on and he says, I'm going to make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So the, the promise, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be mine. I'm going to make your name great. I have plans for you. But the purpose behind that covenant is I'm not only am I going to bless you, but you are going to be a blessing. God, God doesn't want to just, just pour out his blessing into a container. He pours his blessing into conduits that, that can become channels for his blessing to flow. And so now we go back to Acts chapter 4. And the church is praying. And the reason they're praying is because the, the day before, Peter had preached a message. And that message caused him to get arrested and thrown in prison, and that imprisonment led to the prayer meeting we just read about. If you go back to chapter 3 of Acts, I want you to see that while he's preaching that sermon, he's, his text is what we just read in Genesis 12. His text is to try to explain to people, what does it really look like to be a follower of Jesus? What is normal Christianity? So in Peter's message in Acts chapter 3, he quotes... Genesis 12, look at it with me, Acts 3, verse 24. Indeed, Peter says, beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And here's the covenant. He goes all the way back to Genesis 12. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. Like that that's the deal. Because you've come into this covenant promise. You have a covenant purpose. All people on earth will be blessed through you. And, and here's why I want you to see Peter's sermon today. Because in the next verse, he's actually going to clarify what that blessing in your life is. And this is where we're going to take a hard turn from all the prosperity gospel you might hear if you were tuning in to Christian television today, Christian television today. Because we all just kind of assume 
That, oh, the, the ble- I mean, hey, bless, God wants to bless me, amen. You know, give me a Mercedes Benz. God wants to bless me, amen. You know, I'm gonna get, a, I'm gonna get favor on the job. I'm gonna get a promotion. Things are coming my way. And, and hear me, God is good. God can bless you. I believe in blessing, absolutely. But I also understand that that financial gain is not at all what God was talking about. And Peter understood that when he preached it. I want to make sure I'm clear when I preach it. Verse 26, Peter says about that blessing, he says, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you. He's talking about Jesus. When God raised up his servant, he sent him to you to bless you. So here's the blessing of Abraham. It's coming to you through Jesus. What is the blessing? He blessed you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. You know what the greatest blessing of God is in your life? He caused you to repent of your sins, that you could be saved. That's the blessing. That the Holy Spirit working in your life led you to repentance. He says that's, that's the blessing in your life. The blessing was given to you of turning from sin. And then he says, in line with Abraham, all the world will be blessed through you. Like there's a purpose in God saving you. You were saved for service. But our service is not just doing good deeds. It's not just feeding the homeless, visiting those in prison. It's it's all those things, but it's not just showing mercy or compassion or kindness. Those are all great. But specifically, you are blessed with salvation from sin and you're called to bear that salvation to the world. That's the, that's the blessing that he's speaking about. And if, if, if we don't get that, if we're not on mission with our living, then what ends up happening, church, is we begin to focus on things that are maybe more socially acceptable and less scripturally accurate. What happens when you begin to sell out on the gospel is we begin to present to the world an image of Jesus, but it's a distorted image. Like the Bible says in in John chapter one and verse 14, John says, we we beheld him. Like God became flesh and and made his dwelling among us and we beheld him. And, And he said, he was the fullness of grace and truth. He's the fullness of grace and truth. And so if the image that we present of Jesus is, is just truth, that's like, it's like looking at a picture of somebody with just one really big ear. Like it, that's, 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 something's wrong, something's off. If we present an image of Jesus that's, that's just grace, something's out of balance with the picture. Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. And we see him live that out a couple chapters later in John chapter eight. John tells us the story of, of a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery which raises all kinds of questions for me. Like, I don't know, how did they, how did all these religious people catch her in the act of adultery? Looks like a setup to me. But they drag her out into the street and they have stones and they, they, they call out Jesus and they say, Jesus, the, the word of God, the, the Old Testament, the law says we're to stone such a woman. But what do you say? You know, they wanted to know which of your ears is bigger. Are you gonna be grace or are you gonna be truth? You're going to be compassion 
Are you going to be love? Are you going to be justice? Who, who are you? And Jesus says to them, well, let the one that doesn't have any sin throw the first stone. And all of a sudden, the, the older, wiser men in the circle begin to put their stones down one at a time. And then the younger, more zealous uh, men begin to realize that they've been called out and they, they put their stones down too. Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. And he looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, there, there, there's no one, sir. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And a lot of people would put a period right there. And they would say, see, see, we just gotta love everybody. We just gotta accept it. Like Jesus doesn't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Like Jesus, Jesus just, that's who he is. He's, he's grace, he's love. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And some people would only share that part of the story. They would look at the person who's been found out, who's been caught, who's been publicly ashamed, who's embarrassed, who's been humiliated by their story, and they would just look at him and say, you need to stop sinning. No, no, no. He, first, he accepted her. He loved her. He said, I don't condemn you. That's grace. But truth says, leave your life of sin. I love the way Max Lucado said it years ago. God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. I heard Mark Batterson say this recently. He said, grace minus truth, that's weak sauce. Truth minus grace, that's hot sauce. But grace plus truth, that's the secret sauce of the kingdom of God. And we can't, we can't just present the image or the angle or the side of Jesus that's always most palatable. We have to recognize that Jesus came as the fullness of grace and truth and he is beautiful beyond description as the word declares. And we want to communicate all of who he is because we've been blessed. At one point, man of God, woman of God, at one point you came to the realization, I'm a sinner. And the wages of my sin is death. And if I don't deal with that, I'll be eternally separated from God. You came to that understanding. And you recognize there's nothing I can do to save myself. And so you appealed to the mercy and the grace of a loving God who said, since you can't pay for your sin, I'm sending my perfect son. He's going to pay the penalty for your sin. And he demonstrated his love for you by, by giving his son's life on the cross. Jesus said, I, I lay my life down. And you got that. That's why you're here on a Sunday morning. You got that. And if we're not careful, if we're not, if we're not, if we're not intentional about keeping our eyes on what the real blessing is, not just a covenant promise, but a covenant purpose, then we'll just hold on to our little box of blessing and just give the world the love they want and the grace they want and never bring them to the loving truth that friend, you are dying in your sins.
as we all are outside of the grace of Jesus. Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. And he said, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And here, here's the revelation that we need to be reminded of today. Paul says, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. It's as though God were making his appeal through us. That's exactly what it is. It's God making his appeal through us. That's why I always come to this sacred desk with a heart of humility because I recognize that you didn't show up this morning just to hear the opinions of some other guy. I recognize that in this hour, God is making his appeal through me. And he wants to make his appeal through you. It might not be with a microphone in hand. You may never preach a sermon or, 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 or even write one and post it on the internet. But God is making his appeal through his ambassadors. We were at our men's conference this weekend with some of the guys. Man, we had an incredible, incredible time. And one of the speakers made a, a statement. He was quoting Theodore Roosevelt. You talk about a guy that, that loved to live on adventure, man. Study that president. But Theodore Roosevelt said this, and I loved the statement. He said, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The second best thing you can do is the wrong thing. But the worst thing you can do is nothing. Man, when I heard that statement, it immediately reminded me of a prayer that we prayed back at the beginning of this year. When we were casting the vision on a Sunday morning that the Lord was speaking to us as a church in 2023, don't hold back. Don't hold back. And we prayed a prayer together saying, God, grant us the inability to do nothing. Give us the inability to do nothing. It's like David, you know, when he's with his armor bearer and, and they see the enemy up on the hill and he just says, perhaps the Lord will help us. And that was enough to just go do something. I mean, even if you do the wrong thing, it's better than no thing. Like, let's go. It's like those four lepers in 2 Kings when, you know, they're dying of a famine and an incurable disease and they're just sitting there. And finally they come to their senses and they say, are we just gonna sit here till we die? And so they got up and they marched into the enemy camp and God routed the enemy before them and made provision for all of his people. It's, it's just an unwillingness to do nothing. The truth is, friends, that there's some people that they're never gonna witness to their lost friends. They're never gonna share Christ for fear that I might say the wrong thing. What if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to it? There's some people that they're never gonna serve in the church, because they're like, ah, I don't really know if that's for me. I don't really know if I'm any good at that. I've never done that before. There's some people that are never gonna give 
They're never going to sacrifice for missions. And, and, and the, re, the rationale oftentimes is, well, you know, I couldn't afford to tithe. I mean, 10% of my income, can't imagine that. And since I can't do everything, they do nothing. And for fear of doing the wrong thing, we, we fall into a, a pattern of paralysis by analysis. We shoulda, coulda, woulda our way into the pearly gates. Living with covenant promises forsaking covenant purpose. The best thing you can do, that's the right thing. Second best thing you can do is the wrong thing. But the worst thing you could do is nothing. Now I want you to hear my heart today. We serve a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who made you in his image to live on mission. So can, can I just encourage you today, let's not make any excuses. Let's not make excuses. Our times are in his hands. He, he, he put you here just like he put Peter and John and the New Testament church in that generation. He put you and I in this generation. And just as sure as they could look back on a previous generation and say, God prophetically knew what was gonna happen and here it is. He's faithful and he's leading, so enable your servants. We can look back on his faithfulness. We can look back on the other side of an empty tomb. We have all the more reason to say, God is never gonna forsake his people. He's always faithful to his promises. So God, enable your servants in our generation to speak your word boldly to stretch out your hand to perform miracles, signs, and wonders in the name of the Lord Jesus. I, I have in front of me uh, a bunch of next steps cards. These are all filled out, by the way. These were all sitting on, in my office. There, hundreds, hundreds of these cards have been filled out. Th these are familiar to you if you've been here before. They're sitting in the seat pocket in front of you, and they just represent people that have said, ah, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm ready, next step. Maybe the next step is just, you know, I, I need prayer. It takes some vulnerability, especially if you're new to say, hey, I'm going to share a need, you know. Take my halo off on a Sunday morning and, and share a need and ask you to pray with me. Maybe it's to serve on a team or, or, or be a part of ministry. But we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people fill those cards out. And I read a statistic, as exciting as that is, I read a statistic a couple weeks ago, kind of put things in perspective a little bit. If we had three of those cards filled out every Sunday this year, that would be 156 first-time guests. It'd be pretty exciting. 156 first-time guests. But there was a study done of churches across America, and if we had 156 people fill out a next step card, the study showed that 18 will return and get casually involved in the church. Six will get fully connected. And 132, they're not gonna get connected at all. And when I said that in the 830 service, Pastor Chris, our connections pastor, he's going, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole lot of people in that list. I don't have a clue who they are. And I don't say that to discourage the process. We're doing what we can on a Sunday. What I'm saying is the hope of heaven is not hanging on a next step card. The hope of heaven is God's plan for blessing his people and calling them into a purpose. God's desire is that the, the, the lost would be saved in the marketplace. The disciples would be made in the church house. 
So I want to challenge you today. We've only got 10 more weeks in 2023. Don't hold back. Some of you, that makes you really nervous because you realize that means we have nine weeks until Christmas and you're not even, you didn't even start. Like, oh my gosh, nine weeks till Christmas. All the students got excited. <laughs> but but as, I'm, as I'm praying for the heart of our church, one of the things we've heard over and over again, and, and I do think we trend a little better than national statistics, but, but one of the things we've heard over and over is, man, this church is a serving church. Man, this, this community is so impressed. You know, in a couple weeks, we're gonna have our fall fest and uh, we're expecting hundreds and hundreds of families to come on this property and they're gonna see hundreds of church members serving and blessing them there's a place for you to serve right here. Not everybody's ministry is in the church, but there's a place for you to serve. Don't talk yourself out of it. Don't do nothing. I, I had a meeting this week with, uh, with Denise who leads our, minis- our nursery ministry. And they're getting ready to launch a Wednesday night nursery because, because we recognize that that, that prayer meeting is, is so important to our spiritual health. And there's young moms and dads that need to be a part of it. And so they're trying to grow their team. The scary thing about trying to uh, build the teams here is Christmas is nine weeks away. And if it takes about 75 people to minister to all of you and all of our services on the weekend, we're believing on Christmas Eve, we're going to reach 800 people up at the high school. We're going to see 50 people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior on December 24th. We believe that. But when we work that backwards, we also believe it's going to take about 140 volunteers to make it happen. Another study shows that for every one person that serves, 3.5 people attend that don't serve. I, I can't control how many people show up for, East, uh, for Christmas. I, I have no, that's, that's in the Lord's hands. We're gonna reach out, we're gonna invite people. But our responsibility is to make disciples who understand they didn't just get invited into a covenant promise, they got invited into a covenant purpose. And my challenge to you today is don't do nothing. Serve the Lord. It's gonna look different for you than it does for me, but serve the Lord because you've been blessed. And primarily the blessing is that he turned you from your wicked ways. That's the blessing that we're called to share with a watching world today as we get ready to end the service. We're gonna...